What is Love? A Study of the Ten Commandments. Well, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that you're excited. I'm scared to death. <laughs> uh, because the question, obviously, we have to start with is, what do you mean? What do the Ten Commandments have to do with love? Aren't they sandy books of stone and, and lightning and thunder and raw? What, what do the Ten Commandments have to do with love? Well, we saw last week that according to Jesus, everything. That all of the law and the prophets are summed up by love for God and love for our neighbor. Moreover, all of that is predicated, is, comes from the fact that he loved us first and most. God loves us and his love looks like something. God's love, lo- it doesn't just feel like something. It's not a sentiment. It doesn't exist, it doesn't just exist uh, ontologically. God's love looks like something. It does things. It did things for them, and it does things for us. It did something for us. While we were yet sinners, this is how we know God loved us, that while we were yet sinners, God sent his son to die for us. He loved us first and most. His love looks like something, and what we see is that so does ours. Our love looks like something. Love for God and love for neighbor looks like, well, the Ten Commandments. What we'll see today is this, when we ask what is love, the first thing that we see is that love is an undivided heart. Because we're going to use that phrase, and I hope that's what you'll take with you today, I'd like you to say that out loud. Love is an undivided heart. Would you say it? Love is an undivided heart. Here's the beginning. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5. Here's reading from the New Living. You must not have any other God but me. (laughs) Well, I'll just tell Saturday night that you guys are doing much better than they were. Uh, You must not, this is, now just think I get to play four services against each other pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. Competition always leads to improvement. You you must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other God. Now, that last part, even though there's a lot of apparently robust enthusiasm about it, um, that last part for some may rub, and we know, here's the truth is, that last part rubs some people the wrong way. I'm a jealous God. What? How dare he? We almost want to get offended at that idea. Well, first of all, let's put a pin in that. We'll come back at the very end and we'll land on that. But even the idea... You must not have any other God but me. Even that might cause us to tense up a little bit. Here's a spoiler alert. Any, any inclination that we have to stiffen our neck and pull back against that is uh, a symptom of a divided heart. 
First command is this. You must have no other gods but me. This is love for God. This is loyalty and devotion to him, an undivided heart. Now, friends, uh, we need to be honest and recognize that this command, as it is, <laughs> uh, if it's a little bit shocking to us, it would have been incredibly shocking to the first audience. This would have been huge. In fact, it would have been huge. <laughs> to a people who were surrounded by polytheism. They were surrounded by polytheism. Egypt was, if it was anything, it was polytheistic. Gods everywhere, big gods, little gods, angry ones, perverted ones, gods of this thing, gods of the other thing. They were surrounded by this polytheistic culture where they were in, where they were, where everybody around them was inclined to constantly be appeasing or seeking after or seeking the approval of all of these different divine beings. And even the Hebrew people, although they would have carried uh, some this, the, they would have carried what they called Yahwehism, probably forward from Abraham, they still, we know from the prophetic texts and everything, that they still carried on. They, they, they practiced some, some polytheistic stuff. They had some idolatry in their life. And so they come out, they're delivered out of their bondage in Egypt, and they hear Moses tell them from the, from the mouth of God that, they, that there is only one God. That they are to have love for and allegiance to one God. Imagine all of your life, all of these generations, you've, all you've known or heard about is these divine or semi-divine beings that demand attention, approval, even sexual indulgence, even human sacrifice. But imagine hearing the good news that there is a compass and there is one magnetic north. Imagine being delivered from the confusion you know, I don't know if y'all watched some of these, that Billy Graham uh, special series of the, the Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the, one of the central uh, tropes, one of the things that travels through all the movies is that the character, Jack Sparrow, has a compass. And the compass is, uh, it, it, it only, it, it's, it, it's not a constant. The, const, the, the compass moves according to what he wants. It shows him what he wants. But the problem is, he doesn't know what he wants, and sometimes, so it's crazy. Imagine having a compass that pointed every which way, depending on the mood, depending on the moment, but depending on the location. This is, that would lead to a life of confusion and delusion, eventually of oppression and despair. And this is what they lived around, and now they hear, there is one magnetic north. There is one thing that is true. And for us, it remains very, very good news. Well, I hope that you stay happy because I, I may, we might venture. This, look, this is, this is, here it is. For us, this is the total rejection of religious pluralism. If, I, I, well, look, we want to be gracious and kind, but if that means if you, if you thought about buying one of them coexist bumper stickers, this would say maybe not. That doesn't mean there's anger or violence or anything else. It's just like, no, there is. Why do I, I don't want to pretend that there's 14 different magnetic norths on the compass. 
I don't want to live a life of confusion. And I, I want to live with, a, with, with an undivided heart of love and loyalty to God. And that, friends, actually is an antidote. It delivers us from confusion and delusion and despair. All, there, listen, it, if all roads lead to God, then, then God is a God of our own making. Then we just are developers who make whatever God we want. There is one road. There is one way. There is one name above every name. <laughs> Imagine hearing that you can and should love only one God who loved you first. And so we, we love God wholly. We love him singularly with an undivided heart. We order our whole, this is so good. When we order our whole life toward him, it sets our whole life in order. What we worship, what we, dis, what we treat as as was as ultimately worth what we worship defines it affirms what our life is finally about no other gods but me this is how jesus calls us to follow him <laughs> again and people are like well i'm glad we're not in that old testament glad we're in the new one got that grace yeah and then we hear jesus say follow me just me, only me. Matthew four nineteen. Follow me. Matthew eight twenty two. In case that didn't sound like enough, Jesus says, "Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead." Luke fourteen twenty six. Jesus says, "If you want to be my disciple, <clears throat> you must by comparison." Now he's engaging in hyperbole. He's not advocating family conflict here. He said, "You must by comparison hate everyone else." Your father, your mother, your wife, your children, brothers, sisters, yes, even your own life. Of course, he's not actually advocating that kind of hostility. He's saying, by comparison, you must have an undivided heart of love and loyalty to Jesus. Jesus did not and does not accommodate competing devotion. I know we, people love to wear them shirts or put, get those memes, say things like, I love Jesus, but I also cuss a little. <laughs> you probably do, and you, I, I know you do. <laughs> I, and I only use that because it's the most innocent one, I guess. But the thing is this, but there is a sentiment that people have, like, oh, I, I'm a big fan of Jesus. I'm also like a, a big fan of like uh, the occult or whatever. They, this idea that, we, that, that being, you can be a fan of Jesus and, and also include these other totally contrary devotions in your life is a fallacy. The, fir here's, the first step and the foundation of discipleship is an undivided heart. It's the first step. It's not a process. <laughs> I know, it sounds like that would be so great if I could say, well, you know, it's a process. But where, where did, you got married. Who's got married? I was at your wedding. Remember, we talked the whole time she was coming down the aisle. Um, and uh, <laughs> we did, jibber, jibber, jibber. Uh, 
<laughs> or, or just me. Yeah. Nothing, nothing ever changes. So uh, <laughs> thanks for that, by the way. Uh, but imagine, Lisa, imagine that on that, on that December 21st, that, that as you walked down the aisle, Michael turned to you at the, end, at the end of the aisle and said to you, you know what, as a wedding present, I'm going to start having fewer girlfriends. <laughs> I'm going to start. He says, now it's going to be a process. And then I'm sure that in a few years, I'm going to have fewer of them. And maybe one day, grace, grace, I'll have just you, babe. You know, but be patient. God isn't finished with me yet. As a matter of fact, I'm only, I'm only going to have a few pictures of girls that I on the mirror. Michael would have a very short life. The idea of radical commitment isn't really strange to us. It only, it only, only when it means, oftentimes only when it means god's requirement to love him that way then we want a process then we want a little margin (laughs) but it is here friends it is here at the beginning of the decalogue it is here that the call to love god with an undivided heart is the fountainhead of all righteousness. Here. An undivided heart is the fountainhead of all righteousness. All ethics, all morality, all justice begins with this undivided heart of love and loyalty to God. As image bearers, this is our most fundamental reason for being. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that the Lord God created male and female in his likeness, in his image he created them. That means of all the creatures, of all, on all the earth, of all the things, of all the, everything, that it is, it is male and female. We equally... We equally bear the image of God. Singularly among all creation, mankind bears the image of God. And therefore, our reason for being is to live in the sacredness of that relationship between image giver and image bearer. That's That's our life. And anything less than that, anything other than that, is everything that's wrong in the world. Everything that has gone wrong is a violation, is a profanity against the dynamic, the relationship, the sacred agreement between image giver and image bearer. All idolatry, all immorality, even, well, we'll see later, even as from image bearer to image bearer, how we mistreat each other is a violation, is a, is a profane attack against that relationship. 
in the Genesis covenant, when the Lord forbids violence and murder, he says specifically, he says, you shall not murder because that is also an image bearer. They bear the image of the image giver. This is the relationship. And so after Genesis 126 and 27 is the breakdown of that relationship. And so really, these Ten Commandments help give us a, a, an idea of how this thing is restored. How do we live as image bearers? Firstly and foremost, we do so with an undivided heart toward the image giver. Anything less than that, any rejection of that, is essentially rebellion against the sacredness of that relationship. This is what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, when he says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give thanks. And they began to think of foolish ideas about what God was like. They, began, they wouldn't worship him, so they began to remake God in their own thoughts. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they became utter fools. If the fountainhead of righteousness is this undivided heart toward God, then on the other side, the downward cycle of sin also begins at the top. When there is undivided, pardon me, when there is a divided devotion, when our hearts become divided, that is where the downward cycle begins. And what we see both in the narrative throughout the scripture and in the Ten Commandments, that the immediate consequence of a divided heart is idolatry. Listen to the Paul, Paul tells us that. And instead of worshiping the one, pardon me, instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. Because of that violation, they began to violate one another. Verse 25 sums up. And they traded the truth of God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself. Who is worthy of eternal praise? Amen. So then... As we, as we see Paul delineates the downward cycle, we understand the next commandment after you shall have no other gods before me or besides me. Verse 4 picks up, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything. You must not bow down to them or worship them. First of all, let me give a quick disclaimer <laughs> because I, it's like some of you, I've, I've, you know, I'm 51, been in church 52 years. I heard a few things. <clears throat> some of some of them great. Some of them uh, to be against idolatry is not to be against art. Just in case you, hey hey, art bad. Nope, we are not against art. And again, and here's another good news: to be against idolatry is not to be against having nice things. Oh, you got a new car, did you? Idolatry. Ah. <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I, I shouldn't tell this story because it's live. Hi. Um, but man, I walked through, I was at a, I was, and I got to respect people's conscience, and I do, but I just think, oh man, boy, is that too bad. Uh, there was this, there's a guy who went to one of my PhD seminars a couple of years back, 
and, uh, and they were really, really, as a church body, they were wrestling together, like, what to do with one of their members who bought a new car. <laughs> How about you say, good for you? <laughs> Woo, hope it's good. Hope it lasts a long time. But again, that's why it's so important that we approach these things with the wisdom of the Spirit and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because these, these must never be weaponized to condemn. They were never intended to be con- condemning or destroying. In fact, Leviticus tells us that God gave us these things for our own good so that we will have life. <sighs> so if they bring death, there is a problem. So anti, to be against adultery, idolatry is not to be against art or to be against having nice things. Idolatry is instead the natural progression of a divided heart. Is idolatry the worship of a thing? And I know we, most of us do. We think, oh, worship, oh, idolatry. That means we, we, there's this big giant golden statue of a you know, monkey and you know, we're bowing down to it. And we think, I don't do that, so check, I'm good. Is idolatry the worship of a thing? Sort of, but idolatry is far more seductive and sinister than that. Paul affirms already to us that idolatry is exchanging the truth of God for a lie. It's the exchange of that which is invaluable for that which is worthless. Idolatry is not necessarily the belief that an object is divine, but that an object or something represents something that has power to grant me power or pleasure or satisfaction. It represents something. It's a means to an end. In other words, if I, if I honor or venerate this thing or this person or this group or this object, then I can secure what I want. This thing becomes the means to my satisfaction and will meet my needs. So then it becomes a means by which I try to manipulate the world around me. But by consequence, I come under manipulation. Somewhere, idolatry is my attempt to assert control. But in the process, I go into bondage. Now, throughout Scripture, it's affirmed idols are useless. All the prophets, they, they wax. Some of them, they, they go on long monologues just making fun of idols. Heads up, we've heard of their mature audiences in the room. Ezekiel, he makes fun of idols, and he uses foul language. He does. He uses Hebrew naughty words to describe them. But Ezekiel's kind of our crazy Uncle Gary with the hair. He's, I mean, anointed, but... A little Gary goes a long way, but uh, <laughs> idols have no power, but because they have no power, the response of people is to constantly double down and try even harder to get satisfaction or peace from them. Like the prophets of Baal. Well, this isn't working, so we should just try harder. We should exhaust ourselves more. I rubbed the lamp once. It's not working. I should keep rubbing the lamp. Or maybe I need to buy more lamps. And so this is the process by which we come more and more under bondage to that which is powerless. And then worse, and this is the worst part. Worse, there will always be demonic power 
that responds to idolatry. Always. There will always be demonic power that responds to it. Whenever any society fundamentally abandons the call to know and love God, they will also engage in some form of idolatry. And the result will always be the same. Corruption, oppression, immorality, and human suffering. Always the same. I think it's worth noting that the first real idol described in detail in Scripture is in the book of Genesis. The first idol constructed was constructed by group effort. And it was an idol to ourselves, to the state, to man organizing himself outside of his claim. Claiming he needs not God. I don't need God. We're, we can organize this. Ourselves. We will be our own power. We will meet our own need. We will, allegiance to this, allegiance to us, will meet our needs. We, we, will, we will decide what's right and what's wrong and what's fair and what's good. The Tower of Babel was the assertion that we are in charge. We are God. This kind of idolatry continues whenever mankind enthrones themselves. Marxism, communism, socialism, all of them make an idol out of the state. And like all idolatry, it, this will always lead to corruption, oppression, despair, and human suffering. The only way that we can truly live is as we were designed. We were designed as image bearers who, are, who, who will know and love the image giver. That relationship was damaged by sin. Our, we, the, image, the, image, the image bearer was fractured. Not destroyed, not removed entirely, but fractured. There's still something in us that knows, that yearns to know God. But the good news is God yearns to know us first and most. The good news is although that sin fractured that relationship, that Jesus Christ came. That Jesus Christ came and he entered our brokenness and saved us from our sin so that he could reconcile us, so that he could restore us, so that he could restore this vibrant, living, dynamic relationship with God. He loved us first, he saved us, and calls us to love him with an undivided heart. And here's the reason, the very end, we'll come back to it now. Very, this, this thing the Lord says, the reason the Lord gives for desiring an undivided heart from us is this. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous Now, I suppose if you wanted to be really honest, there'd be several of you in the room that like, well, might say, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. I don't like the way that sounds. We know Sister Winfrey didn't like what it sounded like. She decided that she didn't like God anymore when she heard that. Well, <clears throat> here's the good news. Being jealous does not mean being needy. 
God is not, an in, is not insecure. <laughs> you know what jealousy is? Jealousy is a fierce love that longs for loyalty. And there isn't, there isn't a, a, a man in this room married to a woman that he loves that doesn't love her jealously. If you don't, we need to talk. If you think that my friend Michael wouldn't flip you in the beak if you tried to flirt with Lisa, you are wrong. <laughs> I'm just telling you, don't do it. <laughs> jealous, to be jealous is a fierce love that longs for loyalty. If, let, let's just, uh, maybe this will give you a better appreciation for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He's jealous toward you. He's jealous of you. Imagine if it read differently how you'd feel. Imagine if it said, for I, the Lord your God, am indifferent toward you. I can take it or leave it when it comes to you. You don't really matter. No. Rather, we hear this. In this fundamental declaration of all that is love and all that is righteousness, we hear that the bottom line is that our God loves us profoundly and personally. And he longs for our loyal devotion and an undivided heart in response. That is love. We love the Lord with an undivided heart. No other gods, no idols, just Jesus. This is love. Can I ask you to bow your heads across this house and just close your eyes in a private moment of prayer? How's your heart today? You know, the Lord wouldn't have challenged us like this if he didn't know what our hearts are capable of. But he wouldn't have given us this challenge if he, would doesn't, if he would not also supply us with the grace to respond. In other words, the Lord knows our heart. He knows where it's been weak. He knows when it's wandered. But his call is the same. For you to redirect your heart toward him. And he'll give you the grace to do it. He never gives us a command that, that, that he will not also at the same time give us the grace to respond. Lord, the psalmist said, search me and know me and see if there be anything in me that is offensive hurtful to you. Would you search my heart today, Lord? Jesus, I want to follow you with an undivided heart. Jesus, I want to follow you with loyalty and love. Because you love me first, because you love me with a jealous love, because it's right and good, and this is how I was designed. And Lord, because I also know that walking in, with, an, with an undivided heart toward you is the only way to set my whole life in order. It is the, it is the first step and the foundation of making
making all things right. So, Lord, I give you my heart. This is my desire to Here's our life. I give it to you afresh today. Jesus, be Lord of our hearts and our life. We follow you under the anointing and empowering of your spirit with all of our life. For this, we give you thanks and praise. Thank you, Lord, for loving us first and most. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Follow Jesus close. Be kind to somebody on your way out today. If you like prayer, we will hang back and pray with you.